All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are NanoStruck Technologies, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp., Columbus Gold, and Golden Arrow Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me today for the first time David Hunt. David's story is both fascinating and inspirational. David redefines multitasking. He's a renowned and widely celebrated cult winemaker, accomplished musician, lyricist, author, successful entrepreneur, investor, pioneer of smart homes, He's a carpenter and a recording artist, and he's also a husband and a father. But what is most remarkable about David is that half of his total accomplishments were completed after he began losing his eyesight in the 1980s. In 1996, David located uh, and acquired the uh, uh, Paso Roble uh, property, and having learned the technical basics of vineyard management, grape growing, and winemaking, at the University of Davis, and despite his blindness, he was able to be successful as a winemaker and uh, earning several awards for, for his various wines. David uh, believes that his uh, other senses have indeed heightened and helped him compensate for his lack of vision. When, uh, when David is not producing award-winning wines, he's a musical trailblazer forging a new path that redefines traditional musical borders. He recently released uh, a new CD, Rhapsody in Red, which I might just tell my listeners I just downloaded this morning and enjoyed it very much. Um, so he's, so he's a, a very multi-talented individual. And again, what makes this so remarkable is that David uh, lost his eyesight and he has accomplished so much since that time. Welcome, David. It's really good to have you with us on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you so much, Jay. It's my pleasure. You know, you, you were born and raised in North Carolina, and what can you tell us about your formative years in North Carolina and, and perhaps about your family, the family that you grew up in? Um, seven kids. Uh-huh. Uh, not very wealthy. Uh-huh. <laughs> actually very poor. Uh-huh. And my dad was, uh, was blind, too. He had the same degenerative eye disease that I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My mom was the best mom you could write a book about, uh-huh. and uh, he taught me how to work hard and to work smart at an early age. I helped him. He was in the lumber business, everything from uh, pulp wood to stacking lumber to building things, uh, houses, etc., barns. I worked with him from the time I was six years old, and I learned at an early age 
to use my better to use your brain, not your back. Uh-huh. And I think that was extremely formative. And he taught me how to get paid for what I do, not to work by the hour. Mm. So your father was uh, was blind and was operating a lumber a lumber yard. Yeah, he had some sight uh, until he was in his fifties. Uh, mm-hmm. Retinitis pigmentosa slowly is a digressive disease. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, he worked. He worked hard, and I had to work hard. <laughs> he must have been an inspiration to you, though. Um, he was. He was to the extent that no excuses, never give up. Wow, because I think, uh, just, just looking at this and trying to put myself in your shoes, which you never can do until you have the similar, uh, similar problem, but I don't, uh, I don't think that I or many other people would respond the way you did, and I want to get to some of the reasons, and perhaps there's a genetic component to it, but, but there, uh, there also has to be something else. You mentioned your mother was a very, a very good mom, so no doubt your strong, your good parents had a lot to do with your ability to overcome this difficulty that you've had. Um, absolutely, and uh, I, I decided at an early age not to. Um, well, I everybody believes they're going to beat something like this. They're going to mm-hmm. beat cancer. They're going to beat uh, whatever. Uh, but um, I had uh, a bad dose of it. My other brothers had it, but weren't. Uh, uh, were not as restricted as I was earlier in in a in life. Uh huh. But you somehow you decided that you weren't going to let it defeat you, and I think that's why we're talking to you today, David. It's um, uh, it, it's very inspirational. Well, now at age twenty one um, in the nineteen sixties, you headed to California. Aside from the usual attractions of California, I mean, who doesn't <laughs> love California? Its beaches, its uh, its wines, its just its beauty. What took you to the Golden State back in those days? Well, it was 1970. I was I was a musician and I had a band early in life, and uh, that was a great uh, a way of uh, uh, creating positive um, mental images of everything in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I also well, I wanted to, to, to tell your readers, I mean your listeners earlier. I at an early age I got into uh, positive thinking, mental mm-hmm. mental like Napoleon Hill, Dale Carnegie, mm-hmm. uh, Maxwell Maltz, all these people. Because what you put in your brain is, is equal to what comes out. And, and I kind of wanted to re-engineer what my mind was thinking based on the environment I was in. And mm-hmm. that positive reinforcement really helped me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and w- your question was, what, what caused me to want to come to California? Mm-hmm. I had a sister who came to um, California uh, uh, in the 19... Uh, late 60s. And uh, I was invited to be on the dating game. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I came out to be on the dating game, and, and uh, I drove my MG across the country with $35 in my pocket, and my mom let me use her credit card, and that's how I came to California. Wow. What, what a story. So that's what brought you to California initially was your uh, your appearance or your potential appearance. I guess you didn't appear then on the dating game. Yeah, I was on the dating game. I was on the dating game. Oh, yeah. you were on the dating game. Okay. Yeah. All right, all right. I sort of remember that back in those days. I remember, because um, you and I are more or less the same age, I remember uh-huh. that show. Uh, I don't know if I ever saw I don't think I was a regular watcher of it, but it, uh, <laughs> in any event, yeah, I do recall. And so that's what took you to California. Um, and, and, but and you I never really, looked back. <laughs> but, you, but, you, but you really have, a, have had a love for music, and as I understand it, perhaps the love for music sort of uh, grew out of this desire for a positive thinking, putting positive things in your brain. 
I mean, one comes to, Stevie Wonder comes to mind as a blind man who made fantastic music. Um, I, I guess it's, it's, it's the ability to think and it's to what extent people can engineer their own brains to think positively. And that's what you were doing, obviously. You were training yourself to think positively. Um, so you went to California to be, you real, your real love then, though, was music, wasn't it? I mean, at, that was, that, at that time, it was music, um, uh, but I also learned early in life about the, uh, the marketing um, uh, products uh, uh-huh. and, uh, uh, and uh, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Salesmanship in life is so important. If you have a great product and you're honest, uh, you can do very well in, in life. Uh, and so that was something I got involved with. Uh, I helped pay my way through high school. I mean, college. I, I sold um, custom-made uh, shirts and suits and uh, things like that, hmm. uh, uh, just for extra income. And uh, and clothes helped me uh, help me feel good about life and positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that saying clothes make demand. Maybe that was a mm-hmm. that was uh, a great thing too, because uh, that gives you a lot of respect if you look good. So you started, but you, but your love for music was was what was was really, as I understand it, when you went to California, that was your love. And then you started yeah. to realize that that maybe there were some other things that you needed to do. As as you realized that you were going to lose your eyesight at some point, you decided that maybe it was better to start doing some of these businesses because you have had yeah. a very successful career as an entrepreneur as well. Yes. Uh, you know, in, in life, it's the ability to recognize an opportunity. But to recognize it doesn't mean anything unless you seize that opportunity in life. And as a musician, you worry about your recording equipment getting stolen and things like that. So at, at an early age, I, uh, I bought a, an alarm system. Uh, and, and, and everybody kept saying, because that's when after Woodstock, when, everybody, when all the drugs became prevalent and mm-hmm. everybody was breaking into people's houses to get money for drugs. Remember that era? Yes, I, I remember of it, yes. <laughs> so I bought, bought a security system to protect my recording equipment, <laughs> et cetera, and people started saying, hey, can you get me one? And then I saw, I read this article in the Wall Street Journal, said the next four, four to five billion dollar industry would be home security. Uh-huh. So I said, wow. That's that's interesting. I'm already there, so <laughs> I started that company. Uh huh. So you you saw a um, a need in the market that you met, obviously, and yeah. uh, and seized upon it. So you have a, a apparently, perhaps you inherited this from your father as a lumberman, uh, sort of a na- seemingly a natural entrepreneurial ability to to. I mean, you've been very successful. What else have you done besides that business? You had several other businesses, no? Yes. Uh, well. Uh, I was I drove a car up until the, until the 80s, and, and then um, I I was involved with the uh, with the telecom telecommunications industry uh, back back with when the divestiture of AT and T, uh, and that's what spawned me the whole economic uh, electronic industry because the investment tax credits people were getting that spawned electronic telephones. And that led me into helping to bring voicemail to the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of these products I designed around my, uh, my, my needs of being blind. I mm-hmm. was, uh, that was one of them. And then the smart home, I was building a new house, and, and I knew I was going blind. So I helped to pioneer a lot of the things in the smart homes. The things we did in the 80s are still <laughs> really good today. Mm-hmm. Uh, interactive. You walk down the hallway, it turns the lights on for you. Uh, everything can be used security appliances to sense you and turn on lights um, 
make it uh, time and date sensitive to interaction uh, that that we did in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting back to music, what what kind of instruments did you play then, and and what sort of music did you like? My inspiration, actually, I was mostly a lead, a, a singer mm-hmm. back in when I was young, uh-huh. and um, I decided to pick up guitar when I was about eighteen, mm-hmm. and, and then um, I, uh, who inspired me was the Beatles, Motown. Uh, uh, Billy Joel, uh, mm-hmm. all, all those uh, great groups, a lot of the British invasion groups. And then I picked up the piano in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned and taught myself to, to play these instruments. Mm-hmm. And I studied some in college, some music theory and applications and songwriting, etc. Yeah, so your undergraduate degree, what did you, you studied? Uh, I know that you studied winemaking and, and grape yeah, growing well, up, but... I studied business administration as well. Okay. And and, and then I, I I kind of I believe in specialization, uh-huh. uh, things that you're going to apply in life, not uh-huh. liberal arts so much. Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, then, um, but at the same time, uh, you have obviously some talent for the arts because you are a musician and a, and a, and a pretty darn good one, I might say. I uh, after having listened to your music this morning, the first time I've, I was even aware of you was until uh, your publicist brought you to my attention, and and I downloaded your uh, your CD this morning. Um, Thank you. And uh, uh, so so the, so some of these fellows, and you really have a really sound an awful lot like Elton John. There's no doubt. About that. <laughs> Everybody says that. Yeah, thank you. I'll yeah. that. He's my—he's the reason I learned to play piano. Well, anyway, you—and you, it is very good. Um, I would just tell my listeners go to the iStore and download uh, the uh, your album, um, your new one, which uh, was uh, Rhapsody in Red. Is is the name of it? Um, all right. So, so then you sold your businesses and you bought this winery, or you bought this uh, Paso Ruble. Uh, property in California. Uh, what prompted you to to sell your businesses? Number one, and, and buy a, a winery. Uh, I was uh, heavily involved with the, with the smart home business. It became my blindness caused me. To, it became very difficult for me to uh, go out and do uh, site surveys sure. and uh, do a lot of the uh, work that needed to be done. And um, it was kind of time to move on. I have a uh, I have a uh, belief that um, that there's many dreams people can pursue in life. If you don't mm-hmm. like the dream, change the dream. Mm-hmm. And we, my wife and I have been talking about this for years, and we look all over the country from Napa down to Temecula all the way to the East Coast to try to find the right um, property because land is all about the soil. It's mm-hmm. about the environment. It's about the weather. It's about the water. Mm-hmm. And it's about the growing Appalachia. So uh, we picked, uh, we bought 550 acres in Paso Robles, and uh, it was a barley farm. It was dry. There was no water. Mm-hmm. And I liked the soil so much, I was willing to risk uh, $50,000 to dig a well. Mm-hmm. And so I hired a hydrologist and, and did a 10-mile a, a radius uh, water and oil survey, and he came out with the sticks that dig it here. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. So it wasn't as if you purchased a, a vineyard that was already in place. You basically started from scratch. Yeah, 50,000 vines later. 
there. Wow, interesting. Well, now, so uh, for those of us who aren't that familiar with California, tell us where you're located, where your property is located. It's in Paso Robles. That's in the Central Coast. That's um, Central uh, San Luis Obispo okay. County. Uh-huh. So sort of halfway which, between... Which, Sort of halfway between L.A. and San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, and just for your uh, for your listeners, uh, last week wine enthusiasts picked Paso Robles as the uh, the top rated wine region in the world for 2013. Wow, that's phenomenal. So you yes, so is. you liked you like the soils, you like the climate. Your your elevation there is a, so you're probably not ter- you're sort of high elevation as I understand it. What yes, we are. We're, we we started around 1,550 feet and go up to 20. 200 feet. We have 550 acres. So uh, you must have. Uh, so you. So probably different different uh, elevations for different grapes. Yeah, different terroirs, different soil uh, uh-huh. uh, soils for different for different grapes, and you match you you, you match the rootstocks to, and the and the vines to the type of soil. And like for example, we have three different blocks of Cabernet, which is um, um, unbelievable flavors in our Cabernet. We've got uh, like six Cabernets, we've got 96 points. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. Your cabinet. You're best known for your for your cabernets. I understand, and I I also understand that you're selling your wines to some some of the top restaurants in the country, like Ruth's, uh, Chris Steakhouse, the, the Ritz Carlton, uh, Biltmore, the Biltmore, Morton yeah, Steakhouse, yeah. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Those are very yeah. uh, very very prestigious, uh, obviously restaurants. So, uh, congratulations yeah. on that. You, yeah, I mean, I must say personally, I Cabernet Sauvignon is my favorite, but I also like Sauvignon Blanc on the whites, and I see you also have some of those, don't you? Yes, we do, and uh, we, surprisingly, we got a great award last year, and in the, in the best of the California Bordeaux competition, my Sauvignon Blanc won the best white wine, which was a great surprise, <laughs> and we won four out of eight categories, believe it or not, uh, uh, our Merlot won for the best Merlot, and our Cab Franc won, and then our Cabernet won. Well, you have quite a variety, and I might tell our listeners that uh, you do have a website. Uh, I'm trying to look in my notes here for the website. What's the the website where they can um, huntsellers.com? Huntsellers.com. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Yeah. People can go there. In fact, I did and looked around a little bit. Um, uh, I have to. I have to say, I'm I'm, I'm going to have to try your your Cabernet Sauvignon. There's no doubt about it. Well, that. I'll, I'll, on my album, I have um, I have a wine called Cloud Nine. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, a song called Cloud Nine, yes, yes. which was named, um, I have a wine called Cab- uh, Cloud Nine, which is a Cabernet, and drinking a great Cabernet, I'm with you, is kind of like going to Cloud Nine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I uh, wouldn't mind being on Cloud Nine sometimes. I, I suppose my wife thinks I'm there too often, probably, but uh, in any event. Um, you, so you've you've had this successful career in so many different ways and you know one of the things i think that's that's very inspirational to me uh, i should mention you you also write your lyrics don't you you, yes, you, you I do. the music and the lyrics for that album yes. and mm-hmm. um and so you know what so does wine sort of come into play with with music well there's a room? great story with that album if you don't mind you want me to share it with you sure please do okay in nineteen uh, in two thousand nine, April twentieth, two thousand nine, our house burned down. Oof. In the middle, of, we was lucky to get out alive. It happened at three thirty in the morning, <clears throat> and I had written several hundred songs in my life, and 
I so we we, we had to move out obviously because we had to rebuild the entire house, which took three and a half years. Wow! It changed my life forever. But we moved to Hidden Hills, and um, I had to buy musical equipment. And my sons have been saying, Dad, you need to record these songs. They're too good not to record. Mm-hmm. And so as fate would have it, I met a great, uh, a very world, some world-renowned musician, which some of them I knew and some I, I met. One, one gentleman's name was Nils Jipner, who has had four number one hits on, on Billboard mm-hmm. uh, in the past two years. Uh, and so I was going to take, I said, you know what, I think I'll take some guitar lessons. And so I met him. And I listened to what he was doing, and uh, my my sons kept saying, "Dad, you need to do this album." So as Faye would have, I asked I asked him to co-produce the album with me, and uh, that's how fate works in such mysterious ways. Had I not had the fire, this album would probably still be swirling in my head. <laughs> well, it's there now. It's not only in your head; it's in a lot of other people's heads. And let's hope that more people start to recognize your music because I think it is quite good. Um, and and you, uh, so y- you you mentioned your house. You rebuilt your house, and it's not yes. just. It's certainly not a doghouse. It is a very very uh, very sizable house. Tell us a little bit about about your house, if you don't mind. Well, it, it, it's it's big. Um, when I was a child, when I was a kid, I mean, in my 13th, 14th, 15th, formative years, I used to sit and, uh, and look at these, in the South, look at these colonial houses, uh-huh. big white, with the majestic pillows, pillars yes. and things like that. And I, said, and I planted in my mind's eye that one day I'm going to have a house like that, <laughs> not knowing it would be in California. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, uh, as you say, you've ne- you've gone to California. You've never looked back. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, and I'm just looking at a picture of it here that your publicist sent along to me, and it is really, really beautiful. And 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 uh, congratulations on that. But how do you you get around this house uh, without your eyesight? How do you do it? Well, because uh, my wife and I designed it. Uh, I know every nuance, every every in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Occasionally, I hit the walls <laughs> when, I, when I hurry, <laughs> and uh, I have to watch. I have to watch my steps. Um, that we we limited the the places where there are steps, and yeah. uh, uh, and we do have an elevator as well too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yes, it's. Uh, I was happy with the old house, Jay, but mm-hmm. the fire changed it to the new house, and uh, it's pretty much the same house except my wife, of course, made it a little bit bigger. And we put an underground wine cellar, about 1,100, 1,200 square feet wine cellar. That's really cool. You may have some pictures of that. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, I'm proud, but uh, uh, and I'm living my dream. Yeah, and indeed, and it uh, it it really is a, a beautiful dream. That's no doubt about it. I I think that uh, you also at your at your vineyard or at your winery, you also do some concerts, don't you? Yes, I do. Um, and, and, and how can people uh, learn about that? Is there a website? Uh, can... Yes. Yeah, uh, my dot com. Okay. We have the next one will be in March. Uh, it's limited. Uh, the the wineries, uh, where the facility where we have the uh, the winemakers dinners is is kind of small. Occasionally, I do them in Los Angeles at uh, different venues, and uh-huh. I want to do a I want to do a big one down here and uh, uh, um, with the uh, with Rhapsody in Red. 
but uh, the next one's in March at the Zephyrdale Festival, uh-huh. and they can call and make reservations, and it's limited to about 50 people. Okay. All right. Well, that's something else for our listeners to think about. It's certainly, if I were didn't have to get on an airplane and go across the country, I would be looking to do that, no doubt. Um, I'd love I, to have you as my well, guest. Well, it would be fun. It would be, it would be an awful lot of fun. My wife doesn't drink wine. I do, but uh, so... But anyway, we'll get her Coke or some some silly thing like that. Well, um, make make sure you send me your 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 address, and I'll I'll make sure you get a bottle of wine. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, I mean, that's that's worth having you on the show just for that. I, I'm a, I must say, but uh, also I just wanted to leave um, uh, something. Eileen Proctor, your publicist, too, is a mm-hmm. good, good friend of mine. I like Eileen a lot. Anyway, she oh, good. something she passed along here concerning you, and I'd like to just read this for my listeners. Uh, you know, relating to your story, she says, not deterred by losing his vision, half of his total accomplishments were completed after he lost his sight. David is humble, gracious, confident, focused, and openly expresses his inner vision that can see a God-made world, not a man-made world. It seems negativity is not in David's DNA. So what I want to ask you, David, is how are you able to see without your eyesight, how are you able to see a God-made world and not a man-made world? Because I think one of the things that this show is guilty of is seeing a man-made world too much and not seeing the God-made world. How are you able to do that? I mean, does it go back to your positive thinking that you referred to earlier, or how are you able to do that? Well, regarding the physical world, I was uh, I was sighted, and, mm-hmm. and I love the beauty that he created with the from sure. the mountains to the trees, and I have, and I bought properties in the in the in ranches in the mountains and the trees to enjoy that beauty. And as you lose your sight, that that kind of fades, but it's still in your mind's eye. Aha, aha. Uh, and uh, and I give thanks for whatever it was I had every mm-hmm. day, and mm-hmm. all the wonderful things that have happened to me. Would I like to have my sight back? Absolutely. Yeah. I've never seen my daughter's face in uh-huh. seventeen years. Yeah, that's yeah. me. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, I would give anything for that, and uh, and I believe one day I will see Great. whether it's from uh, uh, him giving uh, the ability to fix people's eyes uh, uh-huh. medicine, or, or uh-huh. <laughs> hopefully that we'd love to have a miracle. <laughs> yeah, or, or or in the eternity, perhaps uh, if you yeah. believe in that sort of thing, as as yeah. I do. So I, I really. I really want to thank you so much, David. It's been it's been an inspiration talking to you. Um, with or without the wine, but I certainly will will no doubt uh, find a way to um, uh, to taste your Cabernet Sauvignon. No doubt about that. In my mind, uh, I want to thank you so much. And again, anything else you'd like to add, perhaps before we conclude our discussion today? Well, uh, just thank you for having me on the show. It, it's been a pleasure, uh, and I like what your show is about. And uh, regarding uh, uh, life, just to Every day's a gift. Yeah. Face it with a positive attitude, and good things will happen. Yeah. And regarding our winery, our winery, our, our wines are mostly sold through our clubs and in high-end restaurants. I'd love mm-hmm. to have people join our wine club, and mm-hmm. I I give um, uh, a newsletter. We'll teach them a lot about wine on a. Yeah, with each ship of the wine we send. Okay, it sounds good. Very very good. Uh, again, that is uh, huntsellers.com, I believe, right? Yes. And, and yeah, absolutely. Huntsellers.com. Huntsellers.com. Mm-hmm. And the, can we give the phone number? Yeah, please. It's area code 805-237-1600. 
that's excellent. Thank you very much, David, uh, for being with us today. It, uh, you are an inspiration. And, you know, it isn't just what we're able to see through our eyes, but it's also what we're able to see through our minds and our hearts that, that does matter. And I think back to the times when my father was very helpful to me and took me to baseball games and spent time with me. Uh, and he's no longer with us, but uh, those are memories and things that don't fade away. So what, how we treat our fellow man and how we live our own lives, I think, has a very profound impact on others. So I want to thank you very much, David, for your positive uh, influence on many other people, many, many people. Well, Thank you so much. I hope it does inspire them. One thing I want to, if you got a second, I'll, sure. I'll share with you. Sure. Uh, being from a poor, poor family doesn't mean others can't succeed. My sister uh, is actually married to Vince Gully from the Dodgers. Dodgers, yes, exactly. Well, I'm. He's an announcer for the Dodgers. Exactly and, right. Yeah. That's the story. Very I can famous. Share with you sometime. Yeah. Very yeah. famous man. Yes, he is, and, and a wonderful voice. A fantastic yes. voice, uh, fantastic voice. Well, thank you again, David. Thank you very much for being with uh, us. My pleasure, Jay. Look forward Look to forward meeting to up with you. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Okay, great. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Well, folks, don't go away because coming up next, Greg Johnson will be with me to shed some light on the Prophecy Platinum multi-million ounce Platinum Group Metals project in the Yukon. Specifically, we'll ask Greg to address some of the issues recently raised about Prophecy Platinum's Wellgreen project, raised on this show by highly regarded mining analysts Brent Cook, Eric Coffin, and John Kaiser. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Greg Johnson. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Greg Johnson. He's the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. He was on with us a few weeks ago, and uh, he 
uh, told us about his story. And then, uh, well, I guess just a couple of weeks ago, I had a couple of newsletter writer colleagues, um, competitors of mine on the show talking about the Well Green Project, which is, a, I think, a world-class uh, platinum group metals project in the Yukon that uh, that Prophecy Platinum owns and is developing, and uh, there were you know some some issues, some concerns, um, and so we want to ask. I want to have Greg back today to talk about that. But uh, Greg Johnson has been a very accomplished uh, mining executive with uh, companies like Nova Gold, and um, he worked earlier in his career with Placer Dome, and uh, so he's he's raised a lot of money. One of the uh, not only does Greg have a lot of skills, uh, the skills necessary to uh, to head up uh, a complicated operation, a major operation like uh, like Nova Gold and other things, uh, and like uh, uh, Prophecy Platinum, but he also has an ability to communicate uh, with people that might not necessarily be technically competent, and he's also able to raise capital, which is about as important as anything there is these days in this business. So welcome, Greg. It's really good to have you back again with me. Oh, it's really nice to be back on the program. Thank you uh, for coming with us to, to talk about the Wellgreen project. It is your, it is your uh, number one uh, project uh, by far. It is your flagship. Um, could, for the sake of those that might not know your story, I'd like you just to talk a little bit again about, just give us an overview, the size of the project, the resource, uh, what metals do you have there, uh, and then maybe talk a little bit about the preliminary economic assessment that's been carried out on the project. Yeah, so we we are a development stage uh, company focused on the platinum group metals and, and gold. Um, our project uh, is located, the Well Green project is located in the Yukon, uh, southern Yukon, just off the Alaska Highway. It's an open pitable uh, project, and we are looking at something that has the potential to produce about 7 million ounces of platinum, palladium, and gold, about 2 billion pounds of nickel, and about 2 billion pounds of copper over the life of the project. So it's a quite exciting uh, development project. Um, in our industry, anything more than a million ounces of platinum metals in a deposit is uh, very significant. Anything over probably five million would be considered a world-class uh, deposit for you know PGMs. Uh, the nature of the deposit, as uh, some of your guests you know talked about previously, is what we would call in our business a polymetallic mine. What that means is that we have multiple metals that all occur together in the same rock. And so when we mine this, uh, we may have an emphasis depending on the metal prices of, of certain metals, but along with the platinum, palladium, and gold come nickel, copper, and cobalt. And so one of the things that you know we see when we're assessing these kinds of projects is um, with that mix of metal, you have to look at the relative values of each of those metal components and how they contribute and recoveries and, and factors uh, from the operation will kind of determine that ultimate ratio. Um, we completed what was called a preliminary economic assessment in 2012. And at that point, um, some of the metals were still you know, falling sharply from previous higher levels, particularly uh, the nickel price. And so it suggested at the time in that study that um, that nickel was the largest single economic contributor for the project. Mm-hmm. But when we look at today's um, price deck uh, for the metals with higher PGM prices on a relative basis and lower nickel, um, we believe that um, you know platinum, palladium, and gold are probably going to be the largest economic component of our project, followed by nickel and then followed by copper and cobalt. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, this is a project where 
you know, there are very few projects anywhere in the world outside of South Africa or Russia that have significant PGMs. Uh, here in North America, we just have the two producers, um, Stillwater and North American Palladium. And there's just a handful of uh, low political risk jurisdiction projects out there for people to even uh, consider to development. And, uh, you know, this project appears at this point, uh, we believe, to have, you know, one of the best uh, opportunities in, out there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly, uh, I'd like to just mention a couple of the issues that were raised by the newsletter writers that I had on my show. Uh, you touched on on one of the issues uh, a moment ago, Greg, when you talked about the relative values, and certainly with uh, nickel coming down in, in value substantially from where it was in 2012. Uh, I, I think uh, John Kaiser mentioned the uh, suggested that the value of the PGMs, and maybe he was basing it on that. Uh, uh, you know, on, uh, on the metals prices at that time was uh, only about 26% of the project. What, uh, as the prices stand today, how would, uh, more or less, where would the PGMs plus gold fit into that uh, overall mix? Yeah, so we'd probably be looking at something that would be uh, a mix of, uh, with the metal prices currently, we'd be looking at the PGMs probably representing about 40%. Uh-huh. of the revenue from the project, uh, and we'd be looking at, at something around 30% for uh, nickel, and copper plus cobalt would be the last kind of 30% of the value. And that's factoring in uh, your recovery of the metals uh-huh. and allocating to the respective metals their proportions of the cost to transport and process those metals. Um, and, of course, that those prices and those ranges can vary depending on what metal prices we look going forward. But we're, we're pretty bullish on the PGMs. We think, if anything, there's a potential that those uh, prices may move higher. And, uh, you know, we believe that uh, the recovery factors are likely also to be improved on in our current work that we're, we're undertaking. What sort of recovery uh, numbers were factored into the, uh, into the PEA in, uh, in 2012? Yeah, so the, the 2012 study was our first um, uh, independent engineering study that was done on the project. So it used relatively preliminary numbers that were designed to demonstrate that, you know, this project was operated as a high-grade underground mine back in the 1970s, and the PEA was designed to look at it from a bulk mineable point of view, you know, open pit operation where you were processing disseminated ores where you have lower concentrations. And so the metallurgy that was done in that preliminary economic assessment was really just designed to demonstrate that through a conventional sulfide flotation process, which is the standard of the industry, that you could um, produce these metals. And so the factors that were used for recovery for the PGMs were quite conservative. In fact, palladium was uh, platinum and palladium were under 50% uh, mm-hmm. recovery figures. Uh, based on... Uh, benchmark projects uh, as we look around the world at, at similar projects. And we'd expect the recoveries for the platinum metals to be probably in the 60 to 75% range uh, into you know future studies. And that's a pretty significant increase from under 50% for, for platinum historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it was uh, certainly Brent Cook raised the issue that I've heard most often uh, raised with respect to the recoveries of uh, of the PGMs. Uh, what what are the issues there with respect to recoveries? And Brent talked about some 
uh, pyrotite, I think it's a uh, metal that is, that really gets stuck in the concentrate and, and degrades the grade of the concentrate. What, can you explain perhaps in lay terms what the issues might be and what needs to be overcome to raise the, um, the recoveries of the PGMs? Yeah, so every deposit is going to be a little bit different in terms of the mineralogy, uh, what minerals occur uh, in it. Um, uh, the process of sulfide flotation is, is based on the idea that if you grind this material very finely, that you can actually separate the metal-bearing minerals from the inert rock material uh, using you know various uh, chemicals and the flotation process, which effectively bubbles uh, this uh, finely ground rock and is able to skim off uh, the metal-bearing material in, in what we call flotation. And so what complicates the process of flotation is if you have other minerals that get into that float product mm-hmm. so that you mm-hmm. end up you know, reducing the, the overall quality and grade. Mm-hmm. So a, a large amount of our work has been focused on taking the very preliminary metallurgical testing that was done for the PEA and taking mm-hmm. it to the next level in terms of looking at what order you would uh, process your various metals for, uh, how you would, how finely you would grind the material, um, and looking at other, you know, strategies for improving the overall quality. And so our our initial work that's um, being undertaken, you know, right now, uh, to come into our next updated engineering study, which will probably be coming out in the second quarter, is effectively looking at improvement in all of those uh, processes. Um, one of the things that's quite exciting is we're using a, a very simple method called magnetic separation that can take minerals like pyrotite, which are magnetic, and pull those minerals out of the finely ground product to improve the overall remaining product that you, you run through the flotation process. Mm. And what's exciting is that oftentimes our platinum metals go along with that magnetic material. And so we're able to regrind that material more finely but separate it and then be able to bring that back into the process. And so what that allows us to do is, is to create a, a very uh, attractive copper concentrate product. Uh, it allows us to increase our concentrations of the PGMs, and it allows us to create a cleaner uh, nickel product at the end. And so it lets it separate those minerals that um, don't have economic value and be able to create a product that will be you know, quite marketable uh, on the international smelting market. Yeah, so that's so you're working on those those items right now, and then you might have uh, some new metallurgical numbers to think about in the second quarter. Is that is that what I hear you saying? It, absolutely. Yeah, we're working right now. We have test uh, samples that are that are in the lab. Uh, they're going through and refining and optimizing uh, those flotation recovery numbers, uh, and so we would expect to be able to integrate those into that updated study uh, in the second quarter of next year. The other thing we're looking at, Jay, on the project is we're looking at, in light of the current economic conditions, we're looking at starting with the higher grade material in the deposit first so that we can reduce the capital requirements, the amount that needs to be invested up front in the project, uh, to make it more attractive in, in today's market. So we're, we're looking at a project that would actually be very similar to uh, First Quantum's project in Finland in scale, overall grade of our materials, uh, both in terms of the base metals and the platinum metals, and the same process that they use uh, in that project in Finland. So it's a really good benchmark, actually, uh, for the Well Green project. And so you know, we're going to be looking to incorporate a smaller-scale startup uh, with lower capital intensity and focusing on quality of the rate of return of the project. And overall life of the project would, of course, be extended with that smaller throughput, 
but over time you would likely expand it out of your existing cash flow and, and do a staged you know build up over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is is a project is a project similar to the you say similar uh, metallurgically as well to that first quantum project? Yeah, they're actually very similar geologically and metallurgically. Uh-huh. They use the same process in terms of a concentrate. Uh, flotation process. Uh, mm-hmm. Both produce copper and nickel concentrates with platinum metals uh, reporting to them. Um, environmentally, um, you know that project is actually much further north than our project. It's in Finland and north of the Arctic Circle, but it's a, it's a comparable operation in terms of the scale uh, that they're looking to start up and expand to, uh, as well as the products that they produce and the grades. Although our um, our PGM grades are about twice the grades that they have uh, at that uh, project in Finland. Mm. Well, your uh, the notion of high grading or finding a higher grade a portion of the deposit early on uh, gets to another issue that Brent Cook raised, and that is uh, he said the deposit tends to be potty. By that I mean, I think he means that there are areas that are very you know much higher grade than others. So he was suggesting that's exactly what you need to do. Have you uh, are, are you concentrating work now on trying to delineate certain higher grade areas that you would attack first? Is that another thing that you're working on now? Yeah, in, in, in general, uh, looking at a lower uh, throughput startup concept, you're going to run higher grade material through that. Mm-hmm. We have the benefit that the deposit does have variation in, in grade, so it's not just a big low grade deposit. It's uh, it's actually um, you know considerable grade from an open pit point of view. It's it's actually quite attractive. It's about two grams platinum equivalent uh, mm. throughout the entire okay. ore body. Um, you know, in comparison with many gold projects, as, as you're aware, where they're developing things under a gram mm-hmm. uh, gold equivalent. So, um, you know, it's an attractive grade overall uh, in terms of the deposit. The zones are very wide. It's a tabular deposit, steeply dipping. Mm-hmm. And it's anywhere from 100 to up to 750 meters wide of continuous mineralization that starts at surface. So mm-hmm. we're going to be able to have the advantage on this project as compared with the deep South African mines of open pit mining, which means your cost structure is often 10 times lower than it would be in an underground operation. And we've got these higher grade zones that occur within the deposit that we can go after that typically are anywhere from 10 meters wide up to um, 100 meters wide and are running you know, significantly higher grades, kind of three to five grams per ton uh, platinum grades. So, um, you know, with that kind of equivalent grade, it gives you a lot of flexibility, um, and it should be, you know, quite attractive material to be uh, running through the the overall uh, project. And I would think with that kind of geometry that you're describing uh, should make for relatively low-cost mining as well. Absolutely. And that is fairly unique. There are not very many examples. The the first quantum mine in Finland is is one of the few that you can point to uh, where you have an open pit operation uh, in, in platinum group metals, nickel and copper. Um, most of your comparisons are going to be underground, so the cost structure is quite different. Uh, and that's one thing that, that is a distinction. Now, when Well Green was operated in the 1970s by HUD Bay, you know, they were focused on the very high-grade zones. These were uh, extremely high-grade uh, material that they were mining, and it was relatively discontinuous, and it was one of the challenges that they had uh, in mining that material. Uh, but those those were running uh, in excess of um, 1% nickel, several percent copper, and, uh, you know, 5 to 10-gram uh, platinum-type metals. So, um, you know, that material does exist within the deposit, but it's not the core focus uh, for what we're looking at uh, today from a bulk mining point of view. Yeah, so 
Um, all right. So, you know, both uh, both Brent uh, Cook and Eric Coffin were very bullish on the PGMs, noting that uh, the supply, is, as you pointed out earlier, there's just not that many new large-scale mines coming on. At the same time, China, insatiable demand for uh, for PGMs. Uh, uh, so, uh, what, you know, Robert Friedland, of course, has got one going in South Africa. How would you compare your project to, that's uh, a big deposit there as well but what advantages might you have over over what he's got going there in addition well, to you're, you're, in addition to let's say geopolitical or political issues yeah so clearly being in south africa they've got you know significant social and and political issues that we don't have you know operating in in canada um in terms of uh, you know both Ivanhoe's uh, Platte Reef project and uh, Platinum Group Metals project, also in South Africa, are probably your two most well-known development stage projects. Um, they are both in South Africa. What makes them stand out from the other operations down there, Jay, is the fact that they are potentially bulk mineable. So mm-hmm. even though they're relatively deep underground they are looking at zones that are from 10 meters up to maybe even 100 meters wide mm-hmm. of, of mineralization. And so they're going to be able to employ uh, bulk mineable techniques that should reduce their operating cost and allow them yeah. to produce at higher scale. Yeah. So in a similar vein, because our deposit starts right at surface, we will have uh, the same kind of advantages at Wellgreen as they do at, uh, at Ivanhoe and Platinum Group Metals that we are able to use, you know, large-scale equipment uh, right at surface in our case, um, but potentially also looking at some of these more selective zones in a bulk mining scenario underground. And and so in that regard, they're very similar in in the approach that we'll be able to take on our project as well, though we're not yet at the scale of those two resources. Those are both, um, you know, greater than 10 million ounce uh, resources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, have more scale than so far we've demonstrated at our project, but at 7 million ounces and we believe growing, uh, we mm-hmm. think that uh, you know, we'll be able to demonstrate that this is a, a very significant resource. Uh, excellent. Very good. Well, we are out of time. Greg, I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about your company again. It is a very exciting story. It's a stock that I purchased for my own retirement account. It's a recommendation in my newsletter. Uh, Prophecy Platinum has been a sponsor of this show in the past. I think it's uh, one of the most exciting stories that I see on the mining front right now. And as uh, Brent Cook opined last week, if you can get over a couple of these hurdles, it's going to be a really good one. So I want to thank you very much, Greg, for being with me again. And uh, we'll hope to talk to you again sometime time in the not-too-distant future. Oh, thanks a lot, Jay. We look forward to it. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show and a word or two about next week's guest. I'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay Taylor uh, speaking here for uh, just a couple of minutes left, and I just uh, wanted to mention that one of the issues that we didn't get to talk to Greg about was infrastructure, and as he was pointing out, that this is a project, the Wellgreen, that is right next to the Alaskan Highway, uh, and uh, it, it has uh, access to two ports. Uh, Greg makes the point that uh, you know it's more akin to a British Columbia project than a Yukon project. So I think that's very well worth noting as well. Uh, one of the issues that I think Eric Coffin raised. Uh, so it's not that there's no issues at all within with respect to infrastructure, but probably not uh, nearly as uh, as difficult as you might first think of the Yukon. So. Um, uh, just a, a quick review of today's show. It was really nice uh, talking to David Hunt for a little bit of a positive spin on this show to show that uh, we don't need to allow adversity to get in our way of, of enjoying life and succeeding and moving forward. Uh, turning hard times into good times is definitely what Dave, David uh, Hunt has done with his life and I think an inspiration and encouragement to all of us to do the same with whatever comes in our way. And we should be ashamed if we're Getting our getting down too much because of a gold price that has fallen when uh, when the likes of David Hunt and others have overcome much more severe problems than that. I want to thank uh, Jeff Deist also for coming on today uh, to talk about the Mises Institute, and I look forward to talking to Jeff in the future and some of the fine intellectuals and uh, contributors to the Mises Institute to talk about Austrian economics as well. Uh, so Jeff is always a, he's a good friend of mine. Really good to have him on the show. Uh, also, very good to have talked to Doug Rowe of the Tocqueville Fund. And the Tocqueville Fund has performed extremely well. As pointed out, in the last three or five years, it was the number one fund among 75 different funds, precious metals funds. And I think you got a flavor for why they've succeeded. They really do know their stuff, and they work very hard at the fundamentals. They are all about developing growth long-term, and that's really what the mining industry is all about. It's a long-term proposition. So if you can buy those projects, buy those stocks, when they're really cheap, you can make an awful lot of money. And Doug makes the point, he thinks that we're very, very close to uh, uh, to the bottom of this thing. Greg Johnson, you just heard from him, and Prophecy Platinum, really a very exciting story, I think, and, and one that we'll probably be talking about on this show for weeks and months to come. That's really all the time we have uh, for this week. Next week, Ian Gordon is going to be with me. Uh, he is uh, really looking still at a, at a severe deflationary environment in which gold will be the uh, b- about the only thing that performs very well. We're going to have Jeff Siegel with us to talk about alternative energy uh, possibilities and Bruce uh, Braganolo from uh, Timmins Gold talk about a company that's undervalued, selling at just a little over a dollar, producing 100,000 ounces of gold a year. I really love Timmins, so Bruce will be here to talk to us about that. I want to thank each of you for listening, making the show the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.